Well, whether or not a person is associated with Christianity, the holiday season is a season that is culturally infused with the notion of hope. Uh, for example, uh, the, oh, I'm going to hold on. I forgot the kids' question. I have a note here to remind me. I should have put my note earlier. Did I put it on the screen? Did it flash up there? Is it up there still? Oh, good job. I'm sorry. So this week, next week, the kids are going to have the the elementary school class going again, which is great. Not least of all, because I keep forgetting to to do this part. But but for the kids who want to participate, there's a question for you to think about. What do Christmas and hope have in common? We're going to talk about that today. So Christmas and hope, Put, put those two things together. How do they relate to each other? If I say hope and Christmas, what do you think about? Okay, we got that. Of course, any adults who feel the need to color or, or respond to those questions and leave me a note, you're perfectly welcome to do that too. Expect some significant artwork. So, association of hope and the holiday season. Uh, and, and this just comes up, for example, this week there was an article in the, uh, in the Washington Post. It was an opinion piece and it was entitled, Amid Much Heartbreak, We Also Have Reason for Hope. This Thanksgiving. That was the title of the opinion piece. And the article spoke about a variety of ways uh, that material generosity has been expressed between 2020 and, and 2021, uh, from the fact that, that financial donations to nonprofits have apparently reached new heights this last year, to a, to a story of a local retired grocer who prepared meals for, uh, for those who didn't have anywhere to go over Thanksgiving. Uh, the, the article was, was working to highlight that in the midst of so much difficulty and, and sorrow, the sickness, all the pressures we've been facing currently, uh, there is still hope. We still have reason to anticipate that, that good is out there, that good is going to happen. And that reflects a sentiment of the season. Whether there's religious associations with it or not, this is a time of year attached to the concept of hope. It's a season that reflects a, a longing to move from, from darker days, from more dreary days, to brighter days. And, and we know that to speak about hope presumes this presence of need. To even bring up the concept of hope presumes that there are darker circumstances, there are more dreary circumstances present. Uh, so even here, as we live in the Northwest, I, I don't hope for sunny days on sunny days. That would be a strange thing to speak about. But I do hope for sunny days on day 34 of rainy days. Hope exists in the context of, of, of a kind of presumed need. And that's something that's very true for us, even as we think about it during this Christmas season. A sense of need is something we certainly recognize, and we recognize that in general ways in the world around us. Uh, we're aware that we're currently in a place of deep cultural and social and, and even medical need. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we have a desire for brighter days in general. We hope for improvement. And as we come into the Christmas season, we can also feel this uh, desire for hope personally. We can be acutely aware of, of burdens that reflect personal hardship, burdens that reflect personal sorrow. Uh, we know there's need for hope in our own lives, and we desire a, a movement from despairing situations to situations that are better, to situations that are brighter. And as we come to Psalm 130, this is the, the need reflected in the psalmist's own life. The poet begins in this place of despair, but as we see, as we move through the psalm, despair is not the final word, because from his place of deep difficulty, the psalmist centers his expectations and his longings, he centers his hope on God who promises to bring relief. Uh, and it's that kind of hope, as we'll see, which reaches a unique climax in our, in our Christmas celebration. So, so this psalm, while on the one hand, it's actually categorized as a lament, 
uh, the psalmist here, he's very low when things begin. Uh, it, it also is a song that ends with a proclamation of hope, this kind of genuine, relieving expectation being met because of God's great kindness. And so we're going to work through the poetry here today, just seeing this movement from a place of despair to a place of trust, in fact, to a place of publicly proclaimed trust. Uh, by the end of the psalm, it's a, it's a poem that takes us through what it looks like to live, to, to live with hope as Christian believers. Um, and so we'll focus, uh, we'll focus in this way. We'll look at verses 1 and 2 to begin with, and we'll see there how the psalmist is calling to the Lord from the depths. He's calling to the Lord from the depths. In fact, I'll just read those first two verses again, just so they're fresh in our minds. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for help. Uh, so clearly through the poetry here, we get a glimpse uh, into a level of sorrow and even desperation that's present in the psalmist's life. The psalmist repeats his appeal to the Lord multiple times. He says, I call to you. He says, listen to my voice. He says, let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. That There's a level of intensity reflected in the beginning stanza here of the psalm. And that intensity of crying out is directly connected to this position that the, the, the psalmist says he finds himself in. It's, it's from out of the depths that he's calling to the Lord. That, that's, that's where he finds himself. Now, now, to call to the Lord from the depths, that's not just poetic language there, but for an Israelite, that's language of significant uh, dismay and dread. Uh, for the Israelites, who were not a seafaring people, the idea of the depths, the idea of the, of the raging sea, that was a terrifying concept to them. So much so that in, in Isaiah 51, for example, God's salvation for Israel is described as drying up the sea. So God's salvation is described as taking away that place of terror. We find the same thing in Revelation, where in the new creation, the sea is no more. It's not that there'll be no water in the new creation, it's just that the place of terror will be relieved uh, for us, just like the Lord did so very literally in the crossing of the Red Sea for the Israelites in the Exodus. He dried up that sea. And that imagery is picked up here, though here the psalmist isn't removed from a place of dread. Instead, he's saying he's right in the midst of it. So, so it's from the depths, it's from the, the metaphorical tossing of the waves in his life that the psalmist is calling out to the Lord. And this way of describing dire circumstances isn't, isn't uncommon for the psalmist in distress. We actually see similar language in other, in other poems in the Psalter. In Psalm 69, for example, uh, David there, he's praying to God and he says, The waters have risen to my neck. There's more of that, that watery imagery. So in that context, David is in deep danger from his enemies. They're coming to get him and he's calling to God as the waters reach his neck. It's like he's drowning. And we know from reading through the Psalms that the, the trouble the psalmist can face can come in so many different forms. Uh, the psalmist can be in the depths because of physical sickness. The psalmist can be in the depths because of emotional depression. The psalmist can be in the depths because he's, he's been betrayed by a friend. There are all kinds of circumstances throughout the Psalms uh, that can be described in terms of, of raging waters around him. And, and we know those experiences ourselves. That's why the Psalms can be so helpful. That's why it's so easy to identify with them. Probably it wouldn't take too long for you to think of the last time you felt as if, as if the stormy waves were raging around in your life. Um, maybe that even accurately describes conditions you're facing right now, the scary depths. We know uh, that kind of sentiment in our own life. Uh, throughout the Psalms, there are a variety of tumultuous and scary circumstances that cause the poet to cry out to God for help like this. And so that raises the question, 
uh, of, of what the circumstances are in particular that relate to these, these scary depths the poet finds himself in right now. Uh, what, what are the circumstances of these depths for the poet right here in Psalm 130? Um, and, and as we look at the stanzas here, we can see that the psalmist, uh, he isn't caught in stormy waves of physical persecution from enemies like we might find in other psalms. And, and he's also not surrounded by the depths of sickness or depression. Instead, what we discover is that these depths that are, that are raging around the psalmist, as it were, he finds himself in the depths because of his iniquity. That's what verse 3 and 4 make clear, which we'll get to in a moment. But, but the consuming concern that's washing over the psalmist's heart isn't an immediate physical or emotional pressure. Instead, in this case, the scary depths reflect the poet's transcendent dread, knowing that he's violated God's way. Iniquity is the trouble in his heart. Those are the waves that are boiling around him. It's his, it's his iniquity. And that, and that word iniquity that we find there in verse 3, it's a word that, that's one of the, the Bible's main words to speak about sin, to speak about transgression against God's good way. It's a, it's a word that speaks to things being twisted up and, and out of line with the main way of life. The psalmist, he's, he's found himself now in a position where iniquity has become very evident in his life. The guilt is heavy and, as if, and it's as if the waves of all of that reality are now washing over him. And on that point, it's just a reminder to us that for all the waves of life that might uh, bury us beneath their fury, for all the depths we may face, we must have clarity on the fact that like the psalmist here, we can experience no more desperate need for rescue than the rescue we need from the swirling waves of our sin. As we think about the subject of hope this morning, this is the most essential place we could ever begin. Remember, the very nature of hope presumes a context of need. Hope for a sunny day. Remember, it doesn't exist on a sunny day. It exists on rainy days. Hope presumes a context of need. And we know about needs. We know about needs that are personal. We know about needs that are cultural and social, medical, political, all of these things. The very nature of hope presumes a context of need. And for all the need that surrounds us in our world and for all the need we can face in our own lives, we can be reminded at the very beginning of these Advent Sundays that we have no greater need than to be rescued from the consuming depths of iniquity. That, that may not sound particularly festive, but we know it's cosmically true. Because of our sin, we personally and we as humanity corporately, we find ourselves twisted against God Himself. We've recoiled from our Creator. We've gone contrary to the ways He calls us to go. Instead of trusting, we've rebelled. Instead of loving, we've heard. Instead of believing, we've rejected truth. Instead of being compassionate, we've been heartless. All of these kinds of things that reflect our rebellion against God's way of life. Iniquity is real, and our need, first and foremost, is rescue from that burden of guilt. Our need is to find relief from the otherwise just judgment of God. Hope is always set in the context of need, and our greatest need is forgiveness. We need the pardon that God alone can give, as He is the one who is ultimately the greatest offended party by our contrariness. And so from the depths, from, from the overwhelming and even, even suffocating reality of his sin, we can, we can get the imagery here that the psalmist feels like he's drowning in this. The psalmist calls to the Lord from that place. He says, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. So in verses 1 and 2, he's calling to the Lord from his depths of iniquity. What the iniquity is exactly, we don't know. 
but the psalmist is experiencing these rolling waves of guilt for his, uh, for his rebellion against God, which we can identify with. We felt that, I'm sure. I'm sure you felt that. That sense of weighty dread as you're, as you're mindful of the ways you've gone against God's way. It may be a season, it may be a particular event, but that can weigh on us and the guilt can weigh on us and bring us down. And the question we have there is how, is how do we move out from under that despair that can build so heavily upon us? How, how, how do we move out from that? And, and if you look at verses 3 and 4, the psalmist, he helps us as he, as he moves from calling out to the Lord from these depths to then recounting the Lord's forgiving nature. He brings to mind the Lord's forgiving nature. In fact, he actually speaks back to the Lord about his forgiving nature there in verse 3. So, so if you just look at verses 3 and 4, we can very much appreciate the psalmist's honesty. It, it would be much easier to talk about uh, a subject like sin uh, when it comes to iniquity or things of that nature, it would be much easier to just talk around it and pretend it doesn't exist. In fact, that's the track record of humanity's regular approach to sin. That's a, that's a much easier uh, way to deal with it. At least it seems that way at first. Something, something that's sin under God, we can call it something different. Then if we do that, it won't be sin. And then we won't have the burden of guilt for the way that we've lived. We can remove God from the equation and call immorality by moral names. And, 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 and that's our, our natural way for dealing with the depths of sin that plague our conscience. Humanity has that guilty conscience before God. We're aware of our, of our place of guilt before Him. Romans 1 makes that clear. But the psalmist knows there's actually no genuine hope in that tact at all. All that is ultimately is, is, is living a lie. Instead, the psalmist is just very honest here. So he says, if the Lord kept track of iniquities, who could stand? It's a very honest approach to the whole thing. If the Lord notched down all the ways I've acted or thought that are twisted away from His holy will, who could ever stand before Him and not be absolutely condemned? But, but you see, the amazing reality is that the Lord doesn't keep record of the sins of those who trust in Him to hold those sins against them. Instead, with the Lord, as the psalmist says here, as part of the very nature of who God is, with the Lord, there's forgiveness, verse 4. With the Lord, there's pardon. And there's pardon, not just merely so that we can be relieved from our burden of guilt and view sin maybe complacently because after all, it's God's job to forgive, so He's going to forgive when I need forgiveness. There can kind of be a complacency there. No, no, with the Lord, there's pardon, there's forgiveness. Why? Well, so that He may be revered in verse 4. Very literally in Hebrew, it says, so that He may be feared. Now, that doesn't immediately seem to fit when we read it, does it? Forgiveness of sin from the Lord so that the Lord may be feared. Doesn't it seem like forgiveness would relieve fear, not compel fear? That would seem to make much more sense. But here forgiveness comes from God, the psalmist says, so that He will be feared. What's this all about? Well, the idea of the fear of the Lord, it's so much bigger, we know in our Bibles, than just a base level kind of scared emotion. The fear of the Lord in the Scriptures isn't a concept that means the Lord is, is merely scary. The fear of the Lord all through the Scriptures is bigger than that, in that the concept reflects an, an awe-filled and, and no doubt trembling acknowledgement that God is God and I am not. You see, the condition of humanity in our sin is that of thinking that we can be in charge, that, that we're the ultimate decider of what our good really is. But to fear the Lord is the opposite of that kind of human arrogance and hubris. 
To fear the Lord recognizes that outside of me is the mighty one who has rights to all creation and all souls, including mine, belong to him. He's to be viewed with that reverential awe because he has the only and ultimate power to either condemn or to pardon, to give life or to take life. He's the creator. We're mere receivers of breath on loan from him. And to sin is to first and foremost violate him as our maker and life giver. And therefore to sin puts us in direct accountability to his justice. And because he's holy, because he's righteous and true, and because all souls belong to him, condemnation and forgiveness are ultimately his alone to grant. And here's where fear and forgiveness start to connect. We tremble at the thought of God's pardon because forgiveness is an expression of God's divine prerogative and to receive anything from the Lord, least of all forgiveness for committing cosmic treason against Him, that doesn't leave us flippant about sin, but if we comprehend that with the weighty reality that it represents, to really comprehend that actually leaves us on our knees trembling in awe because He could have condemned, but He didn't. I deserve to be condemned, but I wasn't. What kind of grace is this? This doesn't leave us flippant about sin. This leaves us trembling before the God who forgives. Can you believe He would do such a thing? Amazingly, this kind, forgiving God has extended a kindness to me that I don't deserve. Which is why the psalmist doesn't just call out to God from the depths of his iniquity, but he calls out to God knowing that part of the, part of the godness of God, part of the character of God, part of the nature of who God is, is His willingness to forgive. He is the God of pardon. You, you notice, while well, the psalmist appeals in such a fervent and, and repetitive way in verses 1 and 2, calling to the Lord, listen to my voice, hear my pleas. There's that kind of desperation reflected in that petition there. Well, while that personal appeal is so fervent, here in verse 4, when the psalmist recounts God's nature, he just gives it one steady statement, with you there is forgiveness. Here's something that's absolutely true about God. Non-negotiable, objective, unalterable fact. Forgiveness is part of the godness of God. And that makes him tremble. It's a trembling reality. It's God's to give. And this is worth considering well for us this morning because it's possible for us to be um, maybe deprived of a kind of steady hope just because we never quite get here in our understanding of God and who He is. But part of the godness of God, part of the transcendent reality that makes Him who He is, in all, in all His awe-inspiring glory, but part of the reality of God's nature is that He is the canceller of sin debt against Him. For, for whatever reason, whatever history we may bring to things, instruction we had or people in our lives, it's possible to have a view of God develop in our lives that sees Him in His nature as something other than transcendently forgiving. Maybe God's forgiveness is something nice that He does, but we don't see this as being part of who God is in Himself, in His very nature. And so when that happens, we start to say things like, He could never forgive me because I've done. He could never forgive me because I've done X, Y, Z, whatever it is, fill in the blank. But what we fail to recognize in that instant is that the forgiveness of God is not dependent on the nature of us, but is dependent on the gracious nature of Him. I am forgiven not because of anything I've done, but because of what He's accomplished. And so I can't start walking down those dark roads. Well, I've done these things. How could I ever be forgiven with that? Forgiveness does not reside with you. 
Forgiveness resides in the personhood of the transcendent God who is compassionate. This is exactly how He revealed Himself to Moses. When Moses wants to see God, what does God determine to tell Moses about Himself? Well, He determines to tell Moses that He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations and what? Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You want to know who I am, the Lord says. I am the forgiver of iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So the psalmist from the depths, he turns his attention to the forgiving nature of who God is. The Lord is the one with rights not only to death and life, but he's the one with rights to pardon us and relieve that burden of guilt before him. And for the one who turns to him, his nature is such that he does not keep an account of wrongs, but extends pardon. So it's no wonder the psalmist just just trembles before that kind of undeserved expression of powerful mercy. This is who he is. Can you imagine being in the presence of, of that vast and transcendent person of forgiveness? So, so in verses 1 and 2, we have the psalmist calling to the Lord from the depths. Then in verses 3 and 4, we have him recounting the Lord's forgiving nature. He's feeling the guilt of everything, but he's turning his attention to the one who in his very personhood is the God of all forgiveness. And then in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist affirms his hope in the Lord's word. He keeps moving through things here. So, so you see this start in verse 5 where the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, I wait, and put my hope in His Word. And right here is where our understanding of of the hope found in Scripture is different than the way hope appears in the world around us. Hope in Scripture uh, has has much greater significance than the hope sign that's planted in somebody's yard during the holiday season. Normally around us, we know this, hope reflects a kind of expected possibility. That's what hope is like for us. I just In the example earlier, I hope that it doesn't rain. It might rain, it might not, but my hope is an expected possibility. It's, it's not an assured reality in any sense of the word. Uh, that's just how we use the term. Hope expects, but doesn't necessarily count on. There's no guarantee. However, the sort of hope the psalmist offers here, or relies upon here, is of an entirely different quality. It's not an expected possibility here, but instead the psalmist's hope reflects this absolute certainty. In your word, I hope, he says. The the psalmist is confessing that more than just maybe finding relief, more than that, he expects relief because that relief is not sourced in something that may or may not take place, but that relief is sourced in God's own divine revelation of who he is and what he does. I put my hope in his word. But when it comes to the depths of forgiveness that the psalmist desperately needs, his hope is set on what what God has said he would do. It's very interesting, isn't it, when we find ourselves burdened by guilt, how easy it is to think that forgiveness is actually attached to how I can uh, manufacture a feeling of relief in my own heart. If I, if I could just get these things in order and, and have these things sorted, then that pressure from the guilt is going to be gone. But the psalmist is saying something totally different than that. It's actually in the Word of God, the objective reality that's outside of my guilty self, that I'm going to place my hope. Why? Well, because God Himself has promised to extend forgiveness to all who will turn to Him. There's no deceit in God's revelation. There's no lack of promise fulfillment. And so the psalmist isn't allowing his circumstances of guilt to be governed by his pressing uh, pressing and, and very personal feelings of drowning. 
He's already said he feels like he's drowning, but that's not going to be the controlling factor for him. Instead, his circumstances of guilt are controlled by the sure expectation of forgiveness that God has proclaimed, that God has revealed, and his word always stands. And then right here is, is really where we have this extraordinary glimmer not, not just of hope in God's Word, but, but it's a Christmas hope in God's Word. And it's actually because of verses 5 and 6 that Psalm 130 often appears in Christmas liturgies. And so, so think this out with me for just a minute. We know the psalmist's present condition. As one commentator put it, his guilty conscience has brought him into darkness. That's where he's at. The psalmist is in the depths of realizing he's in severe need of God's forgiveness. He's, he's guilty. He feels that. And here in verse 5, you notice, and this is key, you notice what the psalmist doesn't say. He doesn't say, in the sacrifices, I hope. Now, that would be a reasonable thing to say during this epoch in God's redemptive history. In fact, this is what David says in Psalm 51, doesn't it? Cleanse me with the hyssop and I shall be clean. He refers to the sacrificial ordering of things. In, in Psalm 51, he recognizes that that is a means through which God has promised by faith his people are going to be forgiven ultimately and all of those kinds of things. But here it is interesting that the psalmist doesn't say, in the sacrifices I hope. Because throughout the Old Testament history of Israel, the Levitical system of sacrifices and priestly offerings, that system was the way the people of God were to, to recognize their need for forgiveness before God. That was to be the structure of worship and approach to God, the sacrifices of animals, festivals, all of those kinds of things. All those formal ways of relating to God were paramount for Old Testament believers. They would have been paramount for the psalmist here in the context in which he's writing his poem. The sacrifices reflected the death required for sins committed. But the psalmist here, he doesn't say in Leviticus, I hope. Out of the depths of his guilt, what does he say? In your word, I hope. And why does he say that? Well, we know from our studies in Hebrews about, about the Old Testament sacrificial system. But what, what's one thing that, that among many that the Old Testament sacrificial system could ever do? It could never do. Well, in Hebrews chapter 9, we, we read that it can never relieve the conscience of the worshiper. It could never relieve the conscience of the worshiper. All those, the blood of bulls and goats and all those things. There's something in that old system that left the people, faithful though some may have been, it left them aware that a more full and a more complete dealing with their sin was necessary if they were really going to be free from guilt before God. The dead bull didn't do away with their guilty heart. The guilty conscience still ate at them. Guilt was there under the old covenant. And the psalmist here, he recognizes that in his own heart. He doesn't say in the sacrifices of the Levitical law, I hope. He says to the Lord of forgiveness, in your word, I hope. Because ultimately, it wasn't through the Old Testament sacrifices, but through the word of God, through the promises of God, that a better and final sacrifice would be provided. It is through that that genuine hope, that genuine relief from guilt is going to come. Which is, which is why the psalmist's posture is what it is here in verse 6. If you just look, how, how is he picturing himself, not only as a drowning person in his guilt, but how is he also picturing himself here? Well, he's like a watchman. He's like a watchman. He's waiting for the Lord, verse 6, more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. You can picture the, the sentinel there on the city wall uh, during the hours of darkness peering out knowing that there's, there's the danger of the enemy's presence all around and, and he's just longing for, for, for that light to dawn when things will become more safe. 
You know, here's the psalmist, and he's peering out in the darkness. He's peering like a watchman on the wall of history, looking out for that light which is going to dawn, which is going to bring the reality of forgiveness that his guilty conscience longs for. He's looking out for this truth. Ultimately, what do we know? Well, we know he's watching for Jesus. He's watching for the one who's been promised. He's watching for the one who is climactically going to deal with all the sin, the, the, the need for dealing with sin that those Levitical offerings only pictured. They only pointed forward to a more significant and truly guilt-relieving offering. And so, this is exactly what we find as we, as we go through the, uh, the Old Testament and arrive on the scene of the New Testament. There's the, there's the watchman watching for the morning all the way through. And what do we find then when the angel appears to Joseph and speaks to him about how Mary's going to have a child? What's the significant theological truth the angel communicates to Joseph? Well, he says, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to deliver his people from their sins. He's the one we've been watching for. He's the one. Daylight for the watchman is going to dawn. So, so the psalmist's hope rests on the word of God, which is, which we, as we have so regularly seen in our Old Testament studies, or New Testament for that matter, we regularly see from the beginning of Scripture to the end, all of that revelation, all of that word of the Lord points to the climactic promise-keeping work found in Jesus. And the psalmist here, he sets his assurance, he sets his life-giving, expectant hope on the fact that God has promised through His Word that sins would be forgiven through all who trust in, them, in, in Him, which, which then compels him then from this place of deep sorrow as we begin the psalm to ultimately this place of public proclamation, this public invitation where he is calling others to come and trust in the Lord because with him there is an abundance of redemption. There's an abundance of mercy with him. That's what verses 7 and 8 are all about. This hope sets in our hearts and we're not left merely relieved and sitting there, but, but we're left like the psalmist actually kind of mobilized. Where he's not only realized this hope in his own heart as he looks out down through the corridors of time expecting God to make good on his promises, but he's also then calling others to come and see there's redemption with this God. He will redeem his people from their iniquities. And so we put these kinds of things together and we recognize the significance of Christmas hope is far greater uh, than mere uh, than, than what uh, culture around us may reference. It's, it's bigger than merely sharing a Thanksgiving meal with somebody who might not otherwise have company. Uh, for us, it, it would be an interesting exercise. I don't know if it would, if it would yield anything helpful. Maybe it would just get you in trouble, but it would be an interesting exercise to walk around where we live, to walk around our city, wouldn't it, and just ask people what they hope for at Christmas. Christmas is a, is a season of hope. What, what are you hoping for right now? I imagine the hope would be centered on a number of important things, uh, not least of all the, the threat of the virus and cultural upheaval, all those things. The hope would be centered on hoping for relief from, from those kinds of things. But I wonder how long uh, we would have to ask people our question before somebody said, I just hope this Christmas that the guilt is gone. And I just hope the guilt could be relieved this Christmas because I carry so much of it with me. It's such a burden in my life. I just wish the guilt could be gone. I know I've read this to you before, probably a few times, I, I don't know. I'll read it a few more, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Again, it's a quote from D.A. Carson. It's a wonderful quote to read at Christmas time. He says this, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an economist. If He'd perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent us a comedian or an artist. 
If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, He would have sent us a politician. If He had perceived that our greatest need was health, He would have sent us a doctor. But He perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death, and He sent us a Savior. So this is, this is hope for our Christmas season, that out of the depths... We can cry to God, absolutely guilty before Him for the ways we've twisted up His good way, for all those, those byways that we've walked down that are contrary to His way of life. But from out of the depths, we can cry out to God, guilty before Him. And we don't call out to God as the condemner, though He has all rights to condemn. Instead, we call out to the God who is Himself forgiveness, and who promises that forgiveness through His Word, and who fulfills that promise in the sending of His Son, a baby born of Mary who will live, die, and rise again to save. He will redeem us from all our iniquities. The depths don't ultimately drown us, because our hope, our eternal expectation of pardon is absolutely secure in Christ. So we ask the question, is your hope secure? I suppose I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor if I didn't ask you that at least from time to time. Is your hope secure? Have you honestly recognized your guilt before God? Have you placed your eternal expectation of hope in the finished work of Jesus on the cross where He pays my debt of sin, making me forever at peace with God? Guilt relieved by the God who forgives. We can feel the weight of guilt so heavily upon us. In fact, we're going to sing this song in a moment. But let me quote, quote this lyric to you and recognize the unique, meaningful nature of a, of, of, a, of a lyric like this at Christmas time. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low. I wonder if you felt your forms bending low. Can you identify with that? It's another way of saying you're drowning. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing, O rest beside the weary road, and hear the angels sing, Peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious King. In the coming of Jesus we live with hope, because in Him we have pardon from God and peace with God forever. The depths do not consume us. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that this word would renew our hearts. Uh, may we uh, know your forgiveness that we may fear, that we may tremble before the majesty of your holy mercy. Uh, you are the God of all grace. You are the God uh, who has sent His only Son into the world to save us. There is no greater love than that. May we recognize it for what it is and may we respond as we ought. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.